Section 7 of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, Chapters 16 to 19. Chapter 16. It was astonishing how loudly one laughed at tales of gruesome things, of war's brutality, I with the rest of them. I think at the bottom of it was a sense of the ironical contrast between the normal ways of civilian life and this hark-back to the caveman code. It made all of our old philosophy of life monstrously ridiculous. It played the hat-trick with the gentility of modern manners. Men who had been brought up to Christian virtues, who had prattled their little prayers at mother's knees, who had grown up to a love of poetry, painting, music, and gentle arts, oversensitized to the subtleties of half-tones, delicate scales of emotion, fastidious in their choice of words, in their sense of beauty, found themselves compelled to live and act like ape-men, and it was abominably funny. They laughed at the most frightful episodes, which revealed this contrast between civilized ethics and the old beast law. The more revolting it was, the more, sometimes, they shouted with laughter, especially in reminiscence when the tale was told in the gilded salon of a French chateau or at a mess-table. It was, I think, the laughter of mortals at the trick which had been played on them by an ironical fate. They had been taught to believe that the whole object of life was to reach out to beauty and love, and that mankind, in its progress to perfection, had killed the beast instinct, cruelty, bloodlust, the primitive savage law of survival by tooth and claw and club and axe. All poetry, all art, all religion had preached this gospel and this promise. Now that ideal had broken like a china vase dashed to hard ground. The contrast between that and this was devastating. It was, in an enormous, world-shaking way, like a highly dignified man in a silk hat, morning coat, creased trousers, spats, and patent boots, suddenly slipping on a piece of orange peel, and sitting, all of a heap, with silk hat flying, in a filthy gutter. The wartime humor of the soul roared with mirth at the sight of all that dignity and elegance despoiled. So we laughed merrily, I remember, when a military chaplain, Eton, Christchurch, and Christian service, described how an English sergeant stood round the traverse of a German trench in a night raid, and as the Germans came his way, thinking to escape, he cleft one skull after another with a steel-studded bludgeon, a weapon which he had made with loving craftsmanship on the model of Blunderbore's Club in the pictures of a fairy tale. So we laughed at the adventures of a young barrister, a brilliant fellow in an Oxford union, whose pleasure it was to creep out o' nights into no man's land and lie doggo in a shell-hole close to the enemy's barbed wire until presently, after an hour's waiting or two, a German soldier would crawl out to fetch in a corpse. The English barrister lay with his rifle ready. Where there had been one corpse, there were two. Each night he made a notch in his rifle, three notches one night, to check the number of his victims. Then he came back to breakfast in his dugout with a hearty appetite. In one section of trenches the men made a habit of betting upon those who would be wounded first. It had all the uncertainty of the roulette table. One day, 
when the German gunners were putting over a special dose of hate, a sergeant kept coming to one dugout to inquire about a new chum who had come up with the drafts. "'Is Private Smith all right?' he asked. "'Yes, sergeant, he's all right,' answered the men, crouching in the dark hole. "'Private Smith isn't wounded yet?' asked the sergeant again, five minutes later. "'No, sergeant.' Private Smith was touched by his interest in his well-being. "'That sergeant seems a very kind man,' said the boy. "'Seems to love me like a father.' A yell of laughter answered him. "'You poor bleeding fool,' said one of his comrades. "'He's drawn you in a lottery. Stood to win if you'd been hit.' In digging new trenches and new dugouts, bodies and bits of bodies were unearthed and put into sandbags with the soil that was sent back down a line of men concealing their work from german eyes waiting for any new activity in our ditches bit of bill said the leading man putting in a leg another bit of bill he said unearthing a hand bill's ugly mug he said at a later stage in the operations when a head was found as told afterward that little episode in the trenches seemed immensely comic generals chuckled over it chaplains treasured it. How we used to guffaw at the answer of a cockney soldier who met a German soldier with his hands up, crying, Comrade, comrade, merci! Not so much are your mercy, comrade, said the cockney, and us over your bloody ticker. It was the man's watch he wanted, without sentiment. One tale was most popular, most mirth-arousing, in the early days of the war. Where's your prisoner? asked an intelligence officer, waiting to receive a German sent down from the trenches under escort of an honest corporal. I lost him on the way, sir, said the corporal. Lost him? The corporal was embarrassed. Very sorry, sir. My feelings overcame me, sir. It was like this, sir. The man started talking on the way down, said he was thinking of his poor wife. I'd been thinking of mine, and I felt sorry for him. Then he mentioned how he had two kitties at home. I have two kitties at home, sir, and I couldn't help feeling sorry for him. Then he said as how his old mother had died a while ago, and he'd never see her again. When he started crying, I was so sorry for him, I couldn't stand it any longer, sir. So I killed the poor blighter. Our men in the trenches and out of them, up to the waist in water sometimes, lying in slimy dugouts, lice-eaten, rat-haunted, on the edge of mine craters, under harassing fire, and just the fluke of luck between life and death seized upon any kind of joke as an excuse for laughter. And many a time, in ruins and in trenches and in dugouts, I have heard great laughter. It was the protective armor of men's souls. They knew that if they did not laugh, their courage would go, and nothing would stand between them and fear. "'You know, sir,' said the sergeant major one day, when I walked with him down a communication trench so waterlogged that my top boots were full of slime, it doesn't do to take this war seriously. And, as though in answer to him, a soldier without breeches, and with his shirt tied between his legs, looked at me and remarked, in a philosophical way, with just a glint of comedy in his eyes, That there grand fleet of ours don't seem to be very active, sir. It's a pity you don't come down these blinkin' trenches and do a bit of work. Having a clean-up, my man, said a brigadier to a soldier trying to wash in a basin about the size of a kitchen mug. Yes, sir, said the man, and I wish I was a blasted canary. One of the most remarkable battles on the front was fought by a battalion of Worcesters for the benefit of two English members of Parliament. It was not a very big battle, 
but most dramatic while it lasted. The colonel, who had a sense of humor, arranged it after a telephone message to his dugout, telling him that two politicians were about to visit his battalion in the line, and asking him to show them something interesting. Interesting? said the colonel. Do they think this war is a peep show for politicians? Do they want me to arrange a massacre to make a London holiday? Then his voice changed, and he laughed. Show them something interesting. Oh, all right. I dare say I can do that. He did. When the two MPs arrived, apparently at the front-line trenches, they were informed by the colonel that, much to his regret for their sake, the enemy was just attacking, and that his men were defending their position desperately. We hope for the best, he said, and I think there is just a chance that you will escape with your lives if you stay here quite quietly. Great God, said one of the MPs, and the other was silent but pale. Certainly there was all the noise of a big attack. The Worcesters were standing, too, on the fire range, firing rifle grenades and throwing bombs with terrific energy. Every now and then a man fell, and the stretcher-bearers pounced on him, tied him up in bandages, and carried him away to the field dressing station, whistling as they went. We won't go home to morning, in a most heroic way. The battle lasted twenty minutes, at the end of which time the colonel announced to his visitors, The attack is repulsed, and you gentlemen have nothing more to fear. One of the MPs was thrilled with excitement. The valor of your men was marvelous, he said. What impressed me most was the cheerfulness of the wounded. They were actually grinning as they came down on the stretchers. The colonel grinned, too. In fact, he stifled a fit of coughing. Funny devils, he said. They are so glad to be going home. The members of Parliament went away enormously impressed but they had not enjoyed themselves nearly as well as the Worcesters, who had fought a sham battle, not in the front-line trenches, but in the support trenches two miles back. They laughed for a week afterwards. Chapter 17 On the hill at Viserne, not far from the stately old town of Saint-Omer, visited from time to time by monstrous night-birds who dropped high-explosive eggs, was a large convent. There were no nuns there, but generally some hundreds of young officers and men from many different battalions attending a machine-gun course under the direction of General Baker Carr, who was the master machine-gunner of the British Army, at a time when we were very weak in those weapons compared with the enemy's strength, and a cheery, vital man. "'This war has produced two great dugouts,' said Lord Kitchener on a visit to the convent. "'Me and Baker Carr.' It was the boys who interested me more than the machines. I was never much interested in the machinery of war. They came down from the trenches to this school with a sense of escape from prison, and for the ten days of their course they were like freshers at Oxford, and made the most of their minutes, organizing concerts and other entertainments in the evenings after their initiation into the mysteries of Vickers and Lewis. I was invited to dinner there one night, and sat between two young cavalry officers on long benches crowded with subalterns of many regiments. It was a merry meal, and a good one. To this day I remember a potato pie, gloriously baked, and afterward, as it was the last night of the course, all the officers went wild and indulged in a rag of the public school kind. They straddled across the benches and barged at each other in single tourneys and jousts, riding their hobby-horses with violent rearings and plungings, and bruising one another without grievous hurt, and with yells of laughter. Glasses broke. 
crockery crashed upon the polished boards one boy danced the highland fling on the tables others were waltzing down the corridors there was a rugby scrum in the refectory and hunting men cried the voo halloo and shouted yoikes yoikes general baker carr was a human soul and kept to his own room that night and let the discipline go hang when the battles of the somme began it was those young officers who led their machine-gun sections into the woods of death belleville wood mammoth's wood high wood and the others it was they who afterward held the outpost lines in flanders some of them were still alive on march twenty first nineteen eighteen when they were surrounded by a sea of germans and fought until the last in isolated redoubts north and south of st quentin two of them are still alive those between whom i sat at dinner that night and who escaped many close calls of death before the armistice of the others who charged one another with wooden benches their laughter ringing out some were blown to bits and some were buried alive and some were blinded and gassed and some went missing forevermore chapter eighteen in those long days of trench warfare and stationary lines it was boredom that was the worst malady of the mine a large overwhelming boredom to thousands of men who were in exile from the normal interests of life and from the activities of brain work an intolerable abominable boredom sapping the will-power the moral code the intellect a boredom from which there seemed no escape except by death no relief except by vice no probable or possible change in its dreary routine it was bad enough in the trenches where men look across the parapet to the same corner of hell day by day to the same bodies rotting by the edge of the same mine crater to the same old sandbags in the enemy's line to the blasted trees sliced by shell fire the upturned railway truck of which only the metal remained the distant fringe of trees like gallows on the skyline the broken spire of a church which could be seen in the round o of the telescope when the weather was not too misty in quiet sections of the line the only variation to the routine was the number of casualties day by day by casual shell fire or sniper's bullets and that became part of the boredom what casualties asked the adjutant in his dugout two killed three wounded sir very well you can go a salute in the doorway of the dugout a groan from the adjutant lighting another cigarette leaning with his elbow on the deal table staring at the guttering of the candle by his side at the pile of forms in front of him at the glint of light on the steel helmet hanging by its strap on a nail near the shelf where he kept his safety razor flash lamp love letters in an old cigar box soap whiskey bottle almost empty now and an unread novel hell what a life but there was always work to do and odd incidents and frights and responsibilities it was the worst this boredom for men behind the lines in lorry columns which went from railhead to dump every damned morning and back again by the middle of the morning and then nothing else to do for all the day in a cramped little billet with a sulky woman in the kitchen and squealing children in the yard and a stench of manure through the small window a dull life for an actor who had toured in england and america like one i met dazed and stupefied by years of boredom paying too much for safety 
or for a barrister who had many briefs before the war and now found his memory going though a young man because of the narrow limits of his life between one flemish village and another which was the length of his lorry column and of his adventure of war nothing ever happened to break the monotony not even shell-fire so it was also in small towns like hesden st paul Bruay, lillers a hundred others where officers stayed for hours in charge of motor repair shops ordnance stores labor battalions administration offices claim commissions graves registration agriculture for soldiers all kinds of jobs connected with that life of war but not exciting not exciting so frightful in boredom that men were tempted to take to drink to look around for unattached women to gamble at cards with any poor devil like themselves those were most bored who were most virtuous for them with an ideal in their souls there was no possibility of relief for virtue is not its own reward unless they were mystics as some became who found god good company and needed no other help they had rare luck those fellows with an astounding faith which rose above the irony and the brutality of that business being done in the trenches but there were few of them even with hours of leisure men who had been bookish could not read that was a common phenomenon i could read hardly at all for years and thousands were like me the most exciting novel was dull stuff up against that world convulsion what did the romance of love mean the little tortures of one man's heart or one woman's troubled in their mating when thousands of men were being killed and vast populations were in agony history greek or roman or medieval what was the use of reading that old stuff now that the world history was being made with a rush poetry poor poets with their love of beauty what did beauty matter now that it lay dead in the soul of the world under the filth of battlefields and the dirt of hate and cruelty and the law of the ape-like man no we could not read but talked and talked about the old philosophy of life and structure of society and democracy and liberty and patriotism and internationalism and brotherhood of men and god and christian ethics and then talk no more because all words were futile and just brooded and brooded after searching the daily paper of two days old for any kind of hope and light not finding either chapter nineteen at first in the beginning of the war our officers and men believed that it would have a quick ending our first expeditionary force came out to france with the cheerful shout of now we shan't be long before they fell back from the advancing tide of germans from mons to the marne and fell in their youth like autumn leaves the new army boys who followed them were desperate to get out to the great adventure they cursed the length of their training in english camps we shan't get out till it's too late they said too late oh god even when they had had their first spell in the trenches and came up against german strength they kept a queer faith for a time that something would happen to bring peace as quickly as war had come peace was always coming three months ahead generals and staff officers as well as sergeants and privates had their strong optimism not based on any kind of reason but gradually it died out and in its place came the awful conviction which settled upon the hearts of the fighting men 
that this war would go on forever that it was their doom always to live in ditches and dugouts and that their only way of escape was by a blighty wound or a death a chaplain i knew used to try to cheer up despondent boys by pretending to have special knowledge of inside politics i have it on good authority he said that peace is near at hand there have been negotiations in paris or i don't mind telling you lads that if you get through the next scrap you will have peace before you know where you are they were not believing now he had played that game too often old stuff padre they said that particular crowd did not get through the next scrap but the padre's authority was good they had peace long before the armistice it was worse of all for boys of sensitive minds who were lucky enough to get a cushy wound and so went on and on or who were patched up again quickly after one two or three wounds and came back again it was a boy like that who revealed his bitterness to me one day as we stood together in a salient it's the length of the war he said which does one down at first it seemed like a big adventure and the excitement of it horrible though it was kept one going even the first time i went over the top wasn't so bad as i thought it would be i was dazed and drunk with all sorts of emotions including fear that were worse before going over i had what we call the needle they all have it afterward one didn't know what one was doing even the killing part of the business until one reached the objective and lay down and had time to think and to count the dead about now the excitement has gone out of it and the war looks as though it would go on forever at first we all searched the papers for some hope that the end was near we don't do that now we know that whenever the war ends this year or next this little crowd will be mostly wiped out bound to be and why are we going to die that's what all of us want to know what's it all about oh yes i know the usual answers in defense of liberty save the empire but we've all lost our liberty we're slaves under shell-fire and as for the empire i don't give a curse for it i'm thinking only of my little home at stratham hill the horrible hun i've no quarrel with the poor blighters over there by hooge they are in the same bloody mess as we are they hate it just as much we're all under a spell together which some devils have put on us i wonder if there's a god anywhere this sense of being under a black spell i found expressed by other men and by german prisoners who used the same phrase i remember one of them in the battles of the somme who said in good english this war was not made in any sense of mankind we are under a spell this belief was due i think to the impersonal character of modern warfare in which gunfire is at so long a range that shell-fire has the quality of natural and elemental powers of death like thunderbolts and men killed twenty miles behind the lines were walking over sunny fields or in bushy villages and had no thought of a human enemy desiring their individual death god and christianity raised perplexities in the minds of simple lads desiring life and not death they could not reconcile the christian precepts of the chaplain with the bayoneting of germans and the shambles of the battlefields all this blood and mangled flesh in the fields of france and flanders seemed to them to many of them i know 
a certain proof that god did not exist or if he did exist was not as they were told a god of love but a monster glad of the agonies of men that at least was the thought expressed to me by some london lads who argued the matter with me one day and that was the thought which our army chaplains had to meet from men who would not be put off by conventional words it was not good enough to tell them that the germans were guilty of all this crime and that unless the germans were beaten the world would lose its liberty and life yes we know all that they said but why did god allow the germans or the statesmen who arranged the world by force or the clergy who christened british warships and how is it that both sides pray to the same god for victory there must be something wrong somewhere it was not often men talked like that except to some chaplain who was a human comradely soul some catholic padre who devoted himself fearlessly to their bodily and spiritual needs risking his life with them or to some presbyterian minister who brought them hot cocoa under shell-fire with a cheery word or two as i once heard of keep your hearts up lads and your heads down most of the men became fatalists with odd superstitions in place of faith it's no good worrying they said if your name is written on a german shell you can't escape it and if it isn't written nothing can touch you officers as well as men had this fatalistic belief and superstitions which amused them and helped them have the huns found you out yet i asked some gunner officers in a ruined farmhouse near kemmel hill not yet said one of them and then they all left the table at which we were at lunch and making a rush for some oak beams embraced them ardently they were touching wood take this with you said an irish officer on a night i went to ypres it will help you as it has helped me it's my lucky charm he gave me a little bit of coal which he carried in his tunic and he was so earnest about it that i took it without a smile and felt the safer for it once in a while the men went home on seven days leave or four and then came back again gloomily with a curious kind of hatred of england because the people there seemed so callous to their suffering so utterly without understanding so damned cheerful they hated the smiling women in the streets they loathed the old men who said if i had six sons i would sacrifice them all in the sacred cause they desired the profiteers should die by poison gas they prayed god to get the germans to send zeppelins to england to make the people know what war meant their leave had done them no good at all from a weekend at home i stood among a number of soldiers who were going back to the front after one of those leaves the boat warped away from the pier the mto and a small group of officers detectives and red cross men disappeared behind an empty train and the revenants on deck stared back at the cliffs of england across a widening strip of sea back to the bloody old trenches said a voice and the words ended with a hard laugh they were spoken by a young officer of the guards whom i had seen on the platform at victoria saying good-bye to a pretty woman who had put her hand on his shoulder for a moment and said do be careful desmond for my sake afterward he had sat in the corner of his carriage staring with a fixed gaze at the rushing countryside but seeing nothing of it perhaps as his thoughts travelled backward a few days later he was blown to bits by a bomb an accident of war a little man on deck came up to me and said in a melancholy way you know who i am don't you sir 
I hadn't the least idea who he was, this little ginger-haired soldier with a wizened and wistful face, but I saw that he wore the claret-colored ribbon of the V.C. on his khaki tunic. He gave me his name, and said the papers had done him proud, and that they had made a lot of him at home. Presentations, receptions, speeches, Lord Mayor's addresses, cheering crowds, and all that. He was one of our heroes, though one couldn't tell it by the look of him. Now I'm going back to the trenches, he said gloomily. Same old business, and one of the crowd again. He was suffering from the reaction of popular idolatry. He felt hipped because no one made a fuss of him now, or bothered about his claret-colored ribbon. The staff officers, chaplains, brigade majors, regimental officers, and army nurses were more interested in an airship, a silver fish with shining gills and a humming song in its stomach. France, and the beginning of what the little V.C. had called the same old business. There was the long fleet of motor ambulances as a reminder of the ultimate business of all those young men in khaki whom I had seen drilling in the embankment gardens and shouldering their way down the strand. Some stretchers were being carried to the lift, which goes down to the deck of the hospital ship, on which an officer was ticking off each wounded body after a glance at the label tied to the man's tunic. Several young officers lay under blankets on those stretchers, and one of them caught my eye and smiled as I looked down upon him. The same old business, and the same old pluck. I motored down the long, straight roads of France eastward, toward that network of lines, which are the end of all journeys after a few days' leave, home and back again. The same old sights and sounds and smells which, as long as memory lasts, to men who had the luck to live through the war, will haunt them for the rest of life and speak of Flanders. The harvest was nearly gathered in, and where, a week or two before, there had been fields of high, bronzed corn, there were now long stretches of stubbled ground waiting for the plough. The wheat sheaves had been piled into stacks, or, from many great fields, carted away to the red-roofed barns below the black, old windmills whose sails were motionless because no breath of air stirred on this September afternoon. The smell of Flemish villages, a mingled odor of sun-baked thatch and bakeries and manure heaps and cows and ancient vapors stored up through the centuries, was overborne by a new and more pungent aroma which crept over the fields with the evening haze. It was a sad, melancholy smell, telling of corruption and death. It was the first breath of autumn, and I shivered a little. Must there be another winter of war? The old misery of darkness and dampness was creeping up through the splendor of September sunshine. Those soldiers did not seem to smell it, or, if their nostrils were keen, to mind its menace. Those soldiers who came marching down the road with tanned faces. How fine they looked, and how hard, and how cheerful, with their lot. Speak to them separately, and every man would grouse at the duration of the war and swear that he was fed up with it. Homesickness assailed them at times with a deadly nostalgia. The hammering of shell-fire, which takes its daily toll, spoiled their temper and shook their nerves, as far as a British soldier had any nerves, which I used to sometimes doubt, until I saw again shell-shock cases. But again I heard their laughter, and an old song whistled vilely out of tune, but cheerful to the tramp of their feet. 
They were going back to the trenches after a spell in a rest camp, to the same old business of whiz-bangs and pipsqueaks and dugouts and the smell of wet clay and chloride of lime and the life of earthmen who once belonged to a civilization which had passed. They went whistling on their way, because it was the very best thing to do. One picked up the old landmarks again and got back into the feel of the war zone. There were the five old windmills of Cassel, and the wave of their arms up the hill road, and the estaminets by which one found one's way down country lanes, the veritable cuckoo, and the lost corner, and the flower of the fields, and the first smashed roofs and broken barns which led to the area of constant shell-fire. Ugh! So it was still going on, this bloody murder. There were some more cottages down in the village where we had tea a month before. And in the marketplace of a sleepy old town the windows were mostly broken, and some shops had gone into dust and ashes. That was new since we last passed this way. London was only seven hours away, but the hours on leave there seemed a year ago already. The men who had come back, after sleeping in civilization with a blessed sense of safety, had a few minutes of queer surprise that, after all, this business of war was something more real than a fantastic nightmare, and then put on their moral cloaks against the chill and grim reality for another long spell of it. Very quickly the familiarity of it all came back to them and became the normal instead of the abnormal. They were back again to the settled state of war, as boys go back to public schools after the wrench from home and find that the holiday is only the incident, and school the more endearing experience. There were no new impressions, only the repetition of old impressions, so I found when I heard the guns again and watched the shells bursting about Ypres and over the Kemmel Ridge and Mezzanis Church Tower. Two German airplanes passed overhead, and the hum of their engines was loud in my ears as I lay in the grass. Our shrapnel burst about them, but did not touch their wings. All around there was a slamming of great guns, and I sat chewing a bit of straw by the side of a shell-hole, thinking in the same old way of the utter senselessness of all this noise and hate and sudden death which encircled me for miles. No amount of meditation would screw a new meaning out of it all. It was just the commonplace of life out here. The routine of it went on. The officer who came back from home stepped into his old place, and after the first greeting of, Hello, old man, had a good time? found his old job waiting for him. So there was a new brigadier general. Quick promotion, by Jove. Four men had got knocked out that morning at D4, and it was rotten bad luck that the sergeant major should have been among them. A real good fellow. However, there's that court-martial for this afternoon, and, by the by, when is that timber coming up? Can't build the new dugout if there's no decent wood to be got by stealing or otherwise. You heard how the men got strafed in their billets the other day. Dirty work. The man who had come back went into trenches and had a word or two with the NCOs. Then he went into his own dugout. The mice had been getting at his papers. Oh, yes, that's where he left his pipe. It was lying under the trestle table, just where he dropped it before going on leave. The clay walls were a bit wet after the rains. 
he stood with a chilled feeling in this little hole of his staring at every familiar thing tacked to the wall was the portrait of a woman he said good-bye to her at victoria station how long ago surely more than seven hours or seven years outside there were the old noises the guns were at it again that was a trench mortar the enemy's eight-inch howitzers were plugging away what a beastly row that machine-gun was making playing on the same old spot why couldn't they leave it alone the asses anyhow there was no doubt about it he had come back again back to the trenches and the same old business there was a mine to be blown up that night and it would make a pretty mess in the enemy's lines the colonel was very cheerful about it and explained that a good deal of sapping had been done we've got the bulge on him he said referring to the enemy's failures in this class of work in the mess all the officers were carrying on as usual making the same old jokes the man who had come back got back also the spirit of the thing with astounding rapidity that other life of his away there in old london was shut up in the cupboard of his heart so it went on and on until the torture of the boredom was broken by the crash of big battles and the new armies which had been learning lessons in the school of courage went forward to the great test and passed with honor End of section 7